Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hi, I'm Jackie Broad. I'm an ARC Future Fellow at Monash University, Melbourne, and I'm listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Hatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood, let's get radical about philosophy. And I'm speaking to Professor Rachel Barney about Plato's conception of the good. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Now, I know this is a a really big question, but would you be able to define what good is? Well, I'll I'll take that as a question to myself first and then maybe say a bit about Plato at the end since we're, we're headed in that direction, I guess. Myself, I think it's extremely difficult to define what good is, and I have a suspicion that it's probably not really possible in any philosophically helpful way. I'm very impressed by an argument made by G.E. Moore, early 20th century philosopher, uh, called the open question argument. Moore argues that really we can't define good, and the proof of that is that anything you offer up as a definition, it's still open to the other person to say, well, what's good about that? And Will points out that that, that'll be an open question. You'll have to give some sort of explanation. It'll at least be sort of conceptually possible that there's more to be said. So if you say, well, the good is virtue, or the good is beauty, or the good is happiness, uh, the other person could still say, yeah, but you know, what's, what's good about that? It wouldn't be obvious to them that that was just you know, what the word good meant. So I think Moore is right about that, and that what it shows is that although we can have theories about what things are good, and there are lots of fascinating and even plausible philosophical theories about that, they're not going to be definitions exactly. If you want a definition of the word good, all you're going to be able to say is, well, the good is what's advantageous or what's attractive or what satisfies some norm or has value. And there's something a bit um, circular about all those definitions. They don't really uh, seem to tell us anything. So I think the good is, in an important way, indefinable, but I don't think we should let that slow us down in developing theories about it, and in particular developing theories about what's good for human beings of the kind that Aristotle comes up with, for instance, his theory of the human good and his ethics. As for Plato... It's a very interesting question whether he would agree with what I've just been saying or whether he thinks that somehow at the end of philosophy we are going to be able to uh, define the good. He himself backs away from it a bit in a few dialogues, notably in the Republic. He says, I'm I'm not going to try to do that. I'll just give you an analogy to the form of the good. That's the famous analogy of the sun. And I think... You know, he, he doesn't think that he's completed the task of philosophy, so he may think it's an open question, whether it's an open question. Will we ever be able to come up with a satisfying definition of the good? 
uh, that may be a, a project that he wants his philosophers in the academy to work on. Yeah, you mentioned uh, Aristotle came up with a, a philosophy of what is good for humans. And I suppose if you if you think about the animal experiments that are conducted, and there might be some good that comes out of that for, for humans, but when you think about the cost with the animal experimentation, you think, well, does the, the good for people, is that outweighed by the evil that has been conducted on animals and whether it's good for everybody concerned. Right. Yeah, I think that's certainly a fair point, and you might think that that's one reason we need a theory of the good that's more than just a theory of the human good. There are other goods out there. There's the good of other living beings. There's, uh, I would say, the good of the planet. From some religious points of view, you might be able to talk about the good of reality as a whole or some kind of divine good. So I understand the impulse to try and come up with a comprehensive theory of what goodness itself is, because then we'd be able to define all these different species of goodness against each other and maybe be able to weigh them and so on. But that's a, that's a task I think we haven't got very far with yet. Now, I suppose the opposite to good is, is bad or evil. Would you have a definition of evil? Well, that's even harder, isn't it? Because if, <laughs> if we can't define good, and I'm being skeptical about that, and evil is its opposite, it doesn't look very promising for defining evil. And again, I think we should distinguish between the concepts of good and evil at their most abstract and general and human goodness and evil, uh, because we might be able to make some progress with the latter, even if the former remains a bit too abstract or general for us. I'm actually working right now on a paper on Aristotle's conception of human evil or badness or vice or wickedness, whatever you want to call it. And that's a fascinating topic that hasn't been discussed very much by philosophers. But I think Aristotle has some very interesting things to say about uh, what makes a, a human being a bad person. And they're not really dependent on anything metaphysical or abstract. He's He's looking at the specifics of human character and trying to figure it out in, in much the way we would now. When philosophers have tried to come up with very general metaphysical theories of evil, they tend to end up, end up saying very strange things like uh, evil is privation or kind of metaphysical absence or even evil is matter. That, would, that seems to have been the view of the ancient philosopher Plotinus. And I don't think that's really going to help us figure out what's wrong with mass murderers or war criminals. I think we might as well just start with ethical problems and work directly from there. So what was it that inspired your interest in Plato's conception of the good? Well, I've been fascinated by Plato generally ever since I first encountered him in high school, and in particular by what he says about the good, because he says a lot of very odd things, and they're obviously extremely important to him, and they don't fit together in any very obvious way. So one thing he says, for instance, is that the good is the object of desire. In fact, all our desire is for the good. And I know we'll be saying more about this in a minute. He also says in the Republic that there's this explanatory principle that has to be at the heart of all, all knowledge, all understanding, which is the form of the good. 
And this is also, in some sense, a causal principle. Somehow it's the form of the good which makes reality the way it is. It, it stands behind the other forms, the other realities, and makes them what they are. That's a, that's a very mysterious claim to make. He also says that, and this is something he says over and over, and it's very important to him, the good and the beautiful are either the same thing or very close, so that everything beautiful is good, everything good is beautiful, and in some sense they may even be the same concept. And again, that's quite alien, perhaps, to modern thinking and certainly a bit mysterious. And the final thing he says is, in a late dialogue, the Philebus, he seems to say that the good is or consists in, is somehow very closely related to, so this is the closest he ever gets to a definition, measure, measuredness, limit, some kind of concept of uh, proportion and order. And that, too, is something that's mysterious to the modern mind and doesn't obviously fit together with the other bits. So there's this jigsaw puzzle, which I think a lot of Plato scholars would really like to put together, and it's it's a sort of fascinating exercise in philosophical problem-solving, trying to figure out how these different views might all fit together in a single theory of what the good is. It's interesting that you're sort of connecting good with beauty because there's that saying beauty is in the eye of the beholder because I know myself I've got friends who have bull terrier dogs and they think they're really beautiful but I I think most people would say well they're they're just really ugly yeah yeah absolutely we think of the beautiful as being very subjective and well people disagree over whether the good is or not Ancient thought generally is a bit different on that point, I think. They tend to think that there are pretty objective standards for what's calon, what's beautiful. They recognize that tastes differ, but they do think that there's something objective and universally appealing about genuine beauty. And I don't think they'd grant that your dogs are beautiful. Their model is always, and it's interesting, they don't talk much in the ancient world about the natural world as being beautiful, even though for us that's such an obvious example. They think of beauty as being belonging to people and to gods. The, the physical beauty of the human body is always the example that's foremost in their minds. And for Plato also, the beauty of abstractions, he clearly thinks that mathematics is very beautiful and musical harmonies are very beautiful and he sees those as being essentially mathematical too. And I'm speaking to Professor Rachel Barney about Plato's conception of the good. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR 855 on your AM dial. Yeah, you write about how people's sort of take on things has changed. Uh, I would like to like to see Plato, if he came along today, to listen to our top ten songs what he would think, would they be beautiful? (laughs) I think he would be extremely sceptical about that. There's actually a fun recent book by a philosopher called Rebecca Goldstein called uh, Plato at the Googleplex, where she actually has uh, Plato come back and take a tour of Google facilities 
and engage with different aspects of the modern world and react to them and uh, give a, a positive or a, a negative response. And it's kind of interesting to see her imagine what his different reactions would be. I find it, as I say, it's a fun book, but for me it's actually very hard to imagine Plato reacting to our society. There is really a huge gulf there, which makes it almost a kind of science fiction. And to me that's, in a way, part of the appeal and the fascination that even though uh, in some ways he seems to speak to us very directly, there's also something very other and different there. And that's part of what we can appreciate and learn from. So in, in your opinion, would you say that the good is something that everybody desires? Well, that is a tricky question. Plato thinks that not only is the good something that everybody desires, but it's the only thing that anybody desires. And obviously he knows that we go after very different things in life, and most people, he's acutely aware of this, most people don't go after what he himself thinks is good, which is to say virtue and the life of the intellect and philosophy. So he knows that there isn't any consensus about the good, and he knows that different people desire different things, and indeed we all desire many different and often conflicting things. So he's not denying the psychological reality. What he does think, and what I think is a fascinating proposal on his part, is that everything we desire, we desire in virtue of some feature that we think it has, some positive feature. And so there's a sense, a weak sense, if you like, of good, in which you can just use it for all those positive features belonging to the things we pursue. And in that sense, you can say, yeah, everybody desires the good. In fact, everything we desire, we desire because we think it's good. That doesn't mean morally good. It doesn't mean what I, Plato, think is good. It just means that everything we pursue, we pursue as having some kind of value to us, some kind of positive value. And then the thesis is not so easy to refute. It's not obvious that that's psychologically false. It's something that philosophers are still arguing about. Could you tell us about the appearance theses? Yeah, so this is a a sort of natural uh, follow-up to what I was just talking about. The view Plato has that the good is what we all desire whenever we desire anything, you can divide it into two different positions, and I find it helpful to do that in thinking about it. So one of these is what I've called the appearance thesis, and this is the view that everyone desires what appears good to them. And appears here, uh, you could also say, uh, thinks good or believes to be good. There's some kind of perception of the object as being good, and So there's a a cognitive state that underwrites and causes the desire. So whenever anybody desires something, there's really two things going on. First, there's a a perception of that thing as good, a belief that it has some kind of positive value, and then that triggers the act of desiring, which for Plato is a kind of uh, impulse to get the thing, an impulse towards it, a feeling of attraction. And... Again, you might think that there are uh, obvious examples of desires that aren't like this, where 
the example people always bring up is the addicted uh, smoker or gambler or whatever who keeps pursuing this object of desire despite fully realizing that it isn't good for them. But there are various ways that Plato or anyone who supports this thesis, because there are philosophers out there who still do, various ways you can deal with that. You can say, well, they have conflicting desires. Part of them does perceive this experience as valuable, and that's the part that's hooked on it. So what you're dealing with is a kind of psychological conflict there, not a case of someone desiring something with no perception of it as good at all. So anyway, that's one uh, half of a platonic view. So the other half is what I've called the reality thesis. In my in my first uh, version of the paper on this, I called them the apparent good thesis and the real good thesis. And people giggled whenever I said real good thesis because it sounded like a, a hillbilly um, <laughs> praise. So I changed it to the appearance thesis and the reality thesis. So the reality thesis is that everybody desires what really is good. And what's fascinating about this is, on the one hand, this sounds nuts, because it seems to say that we all desire what uh, really, truly, according to the correct theory, is good, is valuable for us as human beings. And first of all, it seems mysterious what that is. I've said myself that I don't think we can define it. And if it's what Plato thinks it is, then it's something to do with wisdom and virtue, and it sure doesn't look like all human desire is for that. But what's interesting about this is, again, there's an interpretation on which it's not crazy at all, and on which it follows pretty quickly from the appearance thesis, which doesn't sound so crazy, at least in my view. So remember, the appearance thesis is that we all desire what appears good to us. Well, now, suppose, for the sake of argument, that you accept that thesis. How does desire work in relation to appearances that turn out to be deceptive? So think about a case where I say to you, I'd like some of the water in the jug. Could you pour me a glass of water, please? So that looks like a straightforward case of somebody desiring something. I desire a glass of the water in the jug. Well, supposing, suppose it's not really water. Suppose it's antifreeze. Is it still true to say that I desire it? You might think that, no, what I want is water, not antifreeze. I don't want the stuff in the jug. And that suggests a general sort of principle, which is if I want what appears to me a certain way, it's because I want what really is that way. So if I want, if I, to take an example that actually happened to me just on the way over here, if I want the oatmeal cookie at the cafe because I think it's the lowest calorie cookie, but in fact the lowest calorie cookie is the sugar cookie, it seems fair for the barista to say to me, actually you want the sugar cookie if she knows the calorie counts, but I don't. So the principle seems to be that you want the real thing, you don't want the apparent thing. You only want the apparent thing because you think it's the real thing. That's what it means for it to be apparent. So this is, this is where this theory starts to get really hairy, right? And I'm, I hope I'm being clear, but it's difficult stuff. Again, the general idea is that when we want something that appears a certain way, remember appearance here, this language is just the same as the language of what we believe or what we think, what we take to be the case. 
that's, that's what we're talking about here, is taking something to be the case. Well, if we want something because we take it to be a certain way, what we really want is what really is that way. Again, the actual water, not the antifreeze, the cookie that really is low-calorie as opposed to the one that we think is. Now, if you grant that, then the reality thesis actually seems to follow from the appearance one. So remember, the appearance thesis is we desire whatever we desire because we think it's good, because it appears good to us. Well, if you grant this principle I've just been articulating, then it follows from the appearance thesis that what we really desire is what really is good, even if we don't know what that is, right? Even if we're mistaken about it, uh, the way I am with the water and the antifreeze. And that's a kind of weird, radical, revolutionary, fascinating philosophical result. Because as I say, the appearance thesis doesn't seem that crazy. And even if you think there are counterexamples to it, you might think it's true for most of our desires, that typically we desire what appears good to us. And yet in conjunction with this other plausible-sounding theory, that this plausible-sounding principle that we really want what really has the properties of the goods, the things that appear good to us. So you put those two together, and you get this radical-sounding theory that we want what's really good, even if we don't know what that is, even if it's not what we're in fact pursuing, even if it's this mysterious thing that Plato himself has trouble figuring out. So the real object of our desire is something that's actually very obscure to us. And as I say, that sounds like a kind of crazy theory, but it follows from these two positions that don't themselves sound crazy at all. So what is the relevance of desire and want? Well, this is an issue that comes up in relation to these different versions of the thesis that desire is for the good. You might think that some of the problems with Plato's view can be solved and some of the wild, implausible bits got rid of if you distinguish different kinds of desire. Or you might want to choose a more general term there, even different kinds of motivations or impulses or attractions to different sorts of objects, you might think that these come in very different species. So we have, call them desires on the one hand, and maybe those are all somewhat rational, and maybe they are aimed at what we perceive as good. But then maybe we have other kinds of motivation that aren't like that at all, and you could use want or appetite or impulse uh, for some of those. And so you might think, well, we have, and this is in fact what Aristotle does think, that we have rational desires for what's good or perceived as good, and then we have uh, appetites for things that strike us as pleasant, usually, and those aren't at all rational in the same sort of way. So this raises the question of whether our motivations come in different kinds and work in different ways psychologically, and that's a very important question still for moral philosophers and for psychologists. And some people think that Plato anticipated Aristotle in saying, yes, we do have fundamentally different kinds of motivation. They read the Republic as arguing for this because in the Republic, Plato distinguishes between three different parts of the soul. There's the rational soul, which um, calculates and thinks about uh, the future, and considers different options and always pursues what's good and what's true. And then there's the spirited part of the soul, which is uh, much less rational 
and concerned with honor and anger and competition and various sorts of social motivations and emotional motivations. And then there's the appetitive part of the soul, which is what houses our physical appetites for food and drink and sex. And also, interestingly, he says, for money, that's, that's housed down there with the lower physical desires. And so anyway, he, in that sense, seems to think that our desires come in different species, because each of these parts of the soul has its own desires. So the rational soul desires wisdom, and the spirited part of the soul desires honor, and the appetitive part of the soul desires physical pleasure. But that doesn't quite take into the same place as Aristotle necessarily, because you might think, well, those are, sure, those are all desires for different objects, three different kinds of objects, but that doesn't make them different kinds of desire. Maybe they all, as it were, work in the same way psychologically. Maybe they're only different in having different objects, and then it's not so interesting. He's not really coming up with a theory about different kinds of motivation, different kinds of psychological mechanism in the way Aristotle is. Right, well, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Oh, my pleasure. And I've been speaking to Professor Rachel Barney about Plato's conception of the good.